go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. And Father, as we have sung, as we have heard, Lord, indeed, great is your faithfulness. Lord, thank you for these, the testimony from Deanna. And Lord, I know there are many others in this room who could say yes. I praise your name, even in the midst of difficult times. Oh Lord, we have many in our church that are hurting physically. Some are mourning loss today. Lord, thank you that you're the good shepherd that walks through the valleys. And we pray that you would be that one for them today as you've promised. Lord, guide us as we go to the word. Thank you for this precious text. Lord, these ancient words that are changing not only lives then, but now because they are God-breathed. They are your words. And so guide us as we go to Acts 4. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to your Bibles. Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1 of the text. Acts 4. You know, there are a lot of firsts in life, aren't there? They're, they're wonderful firsts. Watching your child take his or first step. Your first car. Your first kiss. At age 34, I said that with my kids present, right? <laughs> There's also those first that, well, they weren't so great. Whether it's your first breakup, your first accident, or your first mortgage payment. <laughs> those are not so great first. The book of Acts is, is a book of first. It's, it's showing us the establishment of the church. We've talked about this. It's It's... Not prescriptive, it's descriptive as it's showing, for instance, the coming of the Spirit, as we saw in the first sermon from Peter. And we get to another first in chapter 4. And this one's not too exciting. <laughs> because it's, well, on one level, because it's, it's the first persecution that we're going to see of the church. In fact, persecution will play a key role as we journey through Acts. You're going to see this, and it does here today. As we unpack these first 22 verses, I want you to watch. We see adversity that hits the apostles in particular, and then watch God's hand. And this, this will happen three times in this. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. When P and J, right, Peter and John... This is that dynamic duo. We've already seen them. In chapter 3, they healed the lame man by the power of Jesus' name. We're speaking to the people. <clears throat> Remember, they, they went up the steps, they healed the lame man, and they've gone into the temple, kind of the courtyard area, over to the right, Solomon's portico, where they were teaching. And notice what happens to the people. The priest, the commander of the temple guard... And the Sadducees come up to them, angry, because they were teaching the people and announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them, put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Again, 3 o'clock is when the layman was healed. We've had Sir Paul, Peter's sermon going on in the temple complex. Dusk is coming. This needs to be addressed. But many of those, here it is, verse 4, who had listened to the message believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. If you're following along in your notes, you'll see the first segment here is adversity, and that is incarceration. There's nothing like cutting a sermon short, is there? <laughs> when this motley crew comes and interrupts. And, and what a group. Notice who you have. You got the frozen chosen, that's the priest, right? 
this group that they know the text, they're very astute. And then it says we have the captain. This is the Sagan Hako Anim. This is the one in charge. This is the most powerful man in Judaism, apart from the high priest. He would have been of the priestly family, most likely, and he was feared. In fact, Jewish writings state that this position was one that was known for cruelty. In fact, one Jewish writing stated that if other temple guards fell asleep, he would light their garment on fire until they woke up. So yeah, he was not to be messed with. He was to keep control. Everything was needed to be tip-top shape on the temple complex. That's this captain. And then you see a group called the Sadducees. Now, we need to know a little bit of context here, and I know some of you know this, so just bear with us. But the ruling body in Judaism in the first century was called the Sanhedrin. It was consisted of 71 men. It was made up of mainly two parties, kind of like our Congress as Republicans and Democrats. This is the Sadducees, the ones you see here, and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were loved by the people. I know they get the, the greatest bum rap through Christ because he, he has some very strong rhetoric for them. But the Pharisees held to the entire canon, the Old Testament. They, they were loved by the people. They were the devout ones. And they were a very large Jewish sect in the first century. The Sadducees were not loved by the people. They were the, the ones very aligned with Rome. They were the aristocrats. They did not hold to the entire Hebrew Bible. They only held to the first five books. They did not believe in the supernatural, and they did not believe in the bodily resurrection. This is key, because twice we're going to be... Notice even in the text it says they were angry, they were upset because he was teaching, announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They didn't hold to the resurrection of the dead. They controlled, the Sadducees controlled the Sanhedrin in the first century. They were to be feared. Remember Caiaphas, the high priest? He's going to be mentioned in the next verse. Caiaphas is a member of the Sanhedrin, or of the, well, the Sanhedrin, but he's also a member of the Sadducees, this very powerful group. So you have these two, these three entities, the priest, which is probably made up of primarily Pharisees, the temple guard, who would have been a Sadducee, and the rest of the Sadducean group, coming up to Jesus, and again, they're not there with a hearty amen. <laughs> Far from it. They're annoyed. In fact, the term, the Net Bible translates it angry. You could translate it. They were greatly annoyed. They were ticked. Again, the text tells us why. They're upset about two things. The preaching of Jesus. Now, why would they be upset about the preaching of Jesus? Because <laughs> they took him out. Remember, he was a problem for them. So they already eliminated him. So they're upset with the preaching of Jesus. And they're also upset about the resurrection. Because again, they don't hold to the resurrection. And so what do they do? They incarcerate them waiting for a trial the next day. Which we will see. But don't you love verse 4? Because in the midst of the adversity that is coming through here. It says, but there were many who believed. Now think about that. You got two of the ringleaders of this new movement called the Jesus thing, this Christian stuff, and they're being arrested. Do you want to hook your wagon to that? Well, through the power of the Spirit, we see the response. It says 5,000, 
And I love how the Net Bible translates this men. It's clear in the Greek. This is only men. It's, we're not counting women and children. So you're talking about a very large group. And back, remember back in, in Acts 2.41, we had 3,000 that were added. Now you add another 5,000 men and women and children. Jerusalem's population in the first century was 75 to uh, 80,000 people. So we're talking nearly 10% of Jerusalem has responded to the gospel. You want to talk about a revival. No wonder the religious rulers are upset. <laughs> no wonder they have done this. And again, persecution is going to play a key theme. But what it shows is nothing, nothing will stop the spread of the gospel. And don't you love that? I was just reading in the news yesterday in Iran, or this morning, <clears throat> it was stating that the persecution on believers in Iran has increased a hundredfold, but they're seeing more growth in the church than they've ever seen in Iran. Turn up the heat, that's fine. God's going to move as he is. One of the lessons there in your notes is that adversity does not necessarily mean you're out of the will of God. Careful. Think of the religious, or of uh, Peter and John that night in the jail. <laughs> it just, I know it would have been running through my mind. Why did we ever stop and talk to that guy? <laughs> we wouldn't be here. Or why didn't we take the group out and preach in, in the in the courtyards area? Why, why are we inside the temple doing this? This, was, this wasn't wise. But oh no, we're going to see that this adversity is exactly what the Lord prescribed. Because those who walk in righteousness will face adversity. John 15, remember what I told you. This is Christ speaking and saying to the slaves, or to his servants, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my word, then they will obey yours as well. But if they do all these things to you on account of my name... Catch that, because that's going to be key here. Because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus has not called us to proclaim a gospel without sacrifice. If Jesus experienced sacrifice and rejection, why should we who follow him expect anything but that? Why? Why would the Lord... Couldn't we, think, couldn't we do this a little differently? You know, like those who share Christ on a plane and everyone's singing kumbayas at lands. Couldn't, couldn't we have that kind of experience, Lord? It's not that our God is sadistic, but through suffering, we are refined in our walk with God. We grow deeper in our relationship with Him. It makes us stronger in this life and becomes glorious in the life that yet is to come. 2 Corinthians 4 for our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we see here this motley crew. They have arrested Peter and John. They've incarcerated them. And yet the fan aflame of the gospel continues in verse 4. Now notice verse 5. Notice what happens here. It says, On the next day their rulers, the elders, and experts in the law came together in Jerusalem. I mean, they're, they're coming out of the woodwork. They're making their way for this very important hearing with Peter and John. Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others who were members of the high priestly family. Keep that in mind. Remember, they are Sadducean. 
After making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, replied, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to you all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, <laughs> there it is, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you as healthy. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. I love he's quoting from Psalm 118. They know the Old Testament inside and out. He says, the builders that has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men and women in whom you will be saved. <clears throat> Notice the adversity here that comes. It's the one of questioning as rulers who are the senior priests. The elders, they're the civic leaders who consist of senior members of the Sanhedrin and the scribes. Those are those who interpret the law. They've all gathered. And no doubt this is, again, that Jewish court, that Congress that ruled these 71. They were powerful, by the way. Herod the Great feared them. They ran to the Roman emperor more than once to tattle on Herod the Great. <laughs> Uh, and yet, their power still was under Rome, but they are controlled again by the Sadducean as they meet. And notice who is the ringleader in verse 6. It's Annas. And the text tells us he's the high priest. He wasn't the high priest at the time of this arrest. And you say, oh, there's a historical error in the, the narrative. No. Annas... It's kind of referring to George W. Bush as president. The title still goes with that position. And in this case, it's significant because Annas has great prominence. He controls it. Five of Annas' sons will become high priest, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, has served as high priest. In fact, notice the names that are listed. It says Caiaphas. He served until 36 A.D. And then it says John. He is the high priest officially at the time of this arrest. But who's really in charge? Annas. He's calling all the shots. Right? He's the big dog. And this is important. Because remember, they're the ones that have the power. They have unbelievable wealth. The high priesthood in the first century was appointed by Herod the Great or the Roman governors. So this isn't because you have a bloodline to Levi like it was in the Old Testament. They bought the position. And with it, as you might expect, was corruption. In fact, later Jewish writings state that Annas was extremely corrupt. He, he took violent means of stealing the tithes so that priest, other priests were starving. <laughs> and so put yourself in Peter and John's shoes. You're standing before a group that... It was only some time ago the guy that Peter and John followed appeared before and that guy was sent to a cross. This is a group who could take your life immediately. And notice the questioning that they have for, for Peter and John in verse 7. They say, by what power, what name do you, and it's emphatic in the Greek, who do you think you are doing this is the idea. 
You are the problem, and how dare you do this? Now, notice what the, the religious rulers are observing, what they recognize. First of all, we're going to see, and it's implied here, Peter and John are associates of Jesus. They recognize that this is a, a movement following Jesus. Secondly, the, they know the lame man has been healed, right? <laughs> they, they won't recognize it publicly, but they know he's been healed. And, and third, and I don't miss this, they understand clearly what Peter and John are teaching. There's no ignorance here. They know full well. Notice what they state there. By what power and name do you know? They know that. It's a leading question. I dare you to say Jesus. It's kind of the idea here. And, and Peter and John are very bold in their response. Well, again, watch God's hand in verse 8. Peter, don't miss this, filled with the Holy Spirit. Here it is. The Lord stated don't worry about what you're going to say when you appear before magistrates, etc. I go before you. And here we see it in full color. Peter has the spirit who goes before. And he, and he, he says, how can you do this? You know the man's been healed. Don't you love it that Peter's so bold? Because it wasn't that long ago, Remember? around a campfire, outside the high priest's home. A servant girl asked him, aren't you the one associated with Jesus? No, absolutely not. <laughs> and now he stands before the master of the slave girl, and he's bold. And he speaks through the power of the Spirit, and I love it. And the implications are clear of what Peter says to him. If Jesus is the one who has healed this man, then Jesus is alive, not dead like you teach, vindicated by God. Because remember, God raised him from the dead. That's the last thing the Sadducees want to hear or believe. And thus, they are culpable for Jesus' death. It's, it's, it's so key. And, and, and Peter takes <laughs> the dagger and he turns it in the juggler when he, he quotes from Psalm 118 there in verse 11. Time and time again in the Old Testament, the rock symbolized God. Daniel predicted that the one, the rock, the Messiah would come. And we're told in Romans that the Jews stumbled over this rock that is the Lord. In other words, the rejected stone is now the cornerstone and that is Christ. And Peter's point is clear. Whom they rejected, God has vindicated. Uh, they, the religious rulers, had to know the context of Psalm 118. There's no way they didn't know it. Psalm 118 is about the righteous, rejected king who was opposed by the nations. Now, the opponent is the Jewish leadership, and they have rejected their king. <laughs> And, and, I, and I love Peter's closing comments to them in verse 12. That salvation is through only Jesus. He is the means. It's exclusive and it's available to all, but it is exclusive. And the question, of course, for you this morning is, have you turned to Jesus? As Peter clearly states, there is no other name under heaven. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. I love Deanna's testimony. It's, it's 
through having a relationship with Christ that I can walk through these valleys. And I, I know what that means. And that leads us to the second point in our notes. Adversity can provide a time to grow spiritually, to serve, and to bring glory to God. 1 Peter 4, but if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. Now, I know that the immediate context is suffering for our faith, but I know as well, any adversity has an opportunity to teach us some things, doesn't it? As I look across this congregation, there are many of you who are in the midst of adversity. I was jotting down, what are some blessings from adversity? One, it verifies our faith. It confirms that we are his. Because he said, if you follow me, you too are going to suffer. It could produce endurance. It should. It should clarify our priorities. It allows us to identify with Christ. It gives us an opportunity to encourage other believers. and allows us to equip, to assist others. And it instills a longing for eternity. <laughs> the verse, all things work together for good. Paul's not saying that cancer, you fill in the blank, is good. It's the next verse, which Paul is stating it's good because it makes us become more like Christ. And we understand these blessings at a level. If Peter and John had not talked to the lame man, they'd have never had the chance to share the gospel to all these religious leaders. And to testify of God's goodness. Justin Martyr was an early church father. He was scourged and beheaded for Christ in 165 AD. Listen to what he states. No one makes us afraid or leads us into captivity as we have set our faith on Jesus. For though we are beheaded and crucified and exposed to beasts and chains and fire and all forms of torture... It is a plan that we do not forsake the confession of our faith. But the more things of this kind what happens to us, the more are there others who become believers through the name of Jesus. <laughs> That's it. And so the adversity comes and we see again the opportunity that God moves through his people as noted in Peter being filled with the Spirit in verse 8. Well, the story gets even better. Look at verse 13. Here we go. When they saw the boldness, don't you love that, of Peter and John, and discovered that they were uneducated and ordinary men, we'll get to that in a minute, they were amazed and recognized these men had been with Jesus. And because they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, what tells us what? The, the lame man is exhibit A. And they would have formed, the religious rulers would have formed a semicircle, and Peter and John were standing in the middle, and there also stands Exhibit A, the lame man. He's not lying on the steps. He's standing there with them. They had nothing to say. <laughs> They're speechless. Now, remember who you're talking about. These guys are not speechless. They have no problem pontificating. But they don't know what to say. But when they, had written, when they had ordered them to go outside of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For it is plain to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable miraculous sign has come through them, and we cannot deny it. They can't say that he's been healed. Otherwise, they're recognizing there's a miracle. 
But to keep this matter from spreading any further among the people, let us warn them to speak to no one, anyone in this name. And so they called them in and ordered them not to speak or to teach at all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, whether it is right before God to obey you rather than God, you decide, for it is impossible for us to, not to speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. And after threatening them further, the second time, they released them, for they could not find how to punish them on account of the people, because, watch this, they were all praising God for what had happened. Wow. They couldn't do anything because there's a praise service going on. <laughs> I love it. For the men on whom this miraculous sign of healing had been performed was over 40 years old. Notice the last adversity. They're falsely charged. And again, notice the assessment of the religious rulers. First of all, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. It was clear. These yahoos, from the perspective of the religious leaders, clearly saw they're not running a popularity contest. Peter and John aren't running for a political campaign. They don't possess any fear. They're not intimidated. Don't they know what we did to their ringleader, Jesus? Second, well, by the way, why are they so bold? What do we see in the text? Well, one is the power of the Spirit. They are certain of the resurrection, which they've highlighted twice to some in that group who don't believe it. They have a personal knowledge of the name. And they understand, Annas, you are nobody before a sovereign God who reigns. And secondly, the religious rulers were astonished by the ordinances, ordinariness, excuse me. These apostles were unschooled. The text tells us uneducated, ordinary men. They lacked a formal education. They didn't have the degrees. They didn't go to Hebrew University. They didn't study under our teachers. You can just hear it. One rabbinic school from the first century doubted that any unlearned person could be religious. So they're looking down their noses at them saying, I, I can't believe this. But they're also astounded that they're conversant with the Hebrew scriptures, that they can engage them to this level. And they recognize that Peter and John again were with Jesus. In the eyes of the religious leaders, they were disciples of a dead man, a disdained dead man. And the religious rulers knew that the man had been healed. There's no question of that. He's no longer at the gate disturbing the customers. By the way, the religious rulers never entered the Holder gates. They came through their own gate. <laughs> they sit here and try to, in their speechlessness, trying to figure out how to squelch this. For clearly they're not seeking truth. They're looking to subvert truth. They refuse to recognize this Jesus. And there's another first century problem that the religious rulers have. It's socially taboo to downplay what a benefactor, someone who has done something for someone else. You don't do that in first century Palestine. That was very wrong. And it's clear Peter and John healed this man so to speak ill of them or to do something to Peter and John puts them in a very precarious position. And so what is their conclusion? 
Well, just threaten them and hope they don't talk anymore. <laughs> really? But notice, they didn't want them to perform miracles. Did you catch what the religious rulers do not want Peter and John to do? They don't want them to mention the name of Jesus. I mean, you can talk about happy holidays or season greetings, but not Merry Christmas. <laughs> you can address yoga events and even host satanic clubs, but never mention the name of Jesus. You can pray for public events, just don't close the prayer in Jesus' name. It's a reminder to us, it should be, that Satan and his minions know the power of Jesus' name. And thus, they will, take, they will go to all costs to see it quieted. <laughs> so this, again, it's not just damage control, though. There's also a setting these apostles up. Because if they do it again, now we have grounds to nail them. And we're going to see that as we move further into the text. But it is, isn't it ironic 71 very powerful men in Judea in the first century cannot stop this movement. The gospel's going forth. Pelican in his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, states, regardless of what anyone personally thinks or believes about Jesus, this one from Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and it is a name that millions pray. Yes, <laughs> because there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And notice God's hand as he moves via the Holy Spirit through Peter and John they state in verse 20, it is impossible for us not to speak. It's a double negative. And the Greek, that means it's emphatic. There is no way we're going to stop speaking. Now, remember who they're talking to. These are folks that could take out Peter and John like that. They said, no, it is impossible. We will not do that. Because in Luke 20, we're to render to God what is God's. There's civil disobedience, like the Jewish midwives during the time of the Exodus, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there in that fiery furnace. Why? Because each one of these people understood they have a message from God. Their obedience was based on the clear teaching of the word, not a personal whim. Implication? The authority in which religious rulers were using was not from God. And Warren Wiersbe does give this little... Warning, we must examine our own hearts honestly to make certain that we're not conducting a holy war just to satisfy our inner frustrations. And that's true. But their message is from God. And secondly, their conviction touched every area of their life. They belong to the Lord. Peter knew that. John knew that. The man who's been restored, who was once crippled, understands that. And so the threats that are delivered, it's not going to work. And I love the religious rulers. They know full well they're in a very precarious spot because we know that the Sadducees were not loved by the populace. The Pharisees were. That's why Jesus was a threat. If he takes the crowd, they have no power base. But for the Sadducees, losing control of the, of the religious people going and following Jesus, no, 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 their allegiance is to Rome. That's where they get their money and yet, notice the text in verse 21. Why did they fear? Because they were all praising 
God. It's what the lame man did when he had his legs restored. And all because of the name of Jesus that is being proclaimed. I love the old hymn, The Name of Jesus, written by William Martin. He says, the name of Jesus is so sweet. I love its music to repeat. It makes my joys full and complete, the precious name of Jesus. Jesus, oh, how sweet the name. Jesus, every day the same. Jesus, let all saints proclaim its worthy praise forever. The second verse says, I love the name of him whose heart knows all my griefs and bears a part, who bids all anxious fears depart. I love the name of Jesus. And that leads us to the third aspect of adversity. Adversity can serve as an incredible opportunity to watch God work. Luke 21 says, you will be hated by everyone, <laughs> not some, you'll be hated by everyone because of my name. And yet, what does the Lord promise? Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. It's easy, isn't it? We all would prefer probably a demolition, a demolition job rather than a renovation project. <laughs> Just take it out. We'll start afresh. But imagine what Peter and John and those early saints would have missed again if, if they had not gone through persecution, if they didn't face adversity. They had the opportunity to stand for Christ. They had the opportunity to share in Christ's suffering. They had the opportunity to testify to the gospel. They had the opportunity to strengthen their faith and resolve. They had an opportunity to witness the power of God, and they had an opportunity to join in one incredible praise service. God is working, Dean Oltrich writes, behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose. Nothing, nothing occurs in our lives by randomness or by chance. Seemingly small and insignificant decisions serve his purpose for our lives. We think nothing of day-to-day -day encounters, so-called accidents of history. But God uses ordinary events to advance his purpose. And so in Acts chapter 4, we see adversity hit. Yes, it's under the umbrella of persecution for our faith. But nonetheless, adversity comes. It will come to those that are standing in the gap. Ministry does have a high price tag. That's, that's key or clear. But in the process, it's an opportunity for us to grow, and it's an opportunity for us to see God work in a mighty way. Today we observe communion as we do once a month here at CBF. You know, and communion is another reminder that God is glorified in the suffering of the righteous. When we think about it, our salvation hinges on the greatest suffering of all, and that's our Savior Jesus, who took on our sin, our crud, paying not only the physical but the spiritual emotional price so that we can be forgiven and have a relationship with the Holy God. Some of you know this week my father is in the hospital and running a million different directions this week. It wasn't easy. and you, I found myself as I'm driving, Lord, really? <laughs> he had to get on a ladder? <laughs> really? Um, and, and you just want to crawl in a fetal position and it, it's nothing to, compared to what many of you are going through right now. I'm hoping that as we take communion today, 
you'd understand this is the one who loves us dearly. He's entered our world, our time and space. He knows what adversity is about. And yes, he ascended in heaven, first part of Acts, but he's right there in Acts chapter 4 as well. Peter and John knew that, and that's what gave them boldness. It gave them the strength to stand. If you know Christ as your Savior, this, this table is for you. As the elders and deacons come forward and our praise team, we need to spend some time in prayer to say, Lord, give me strength. Help me to look to you. Perhaps you need to ask for forgiveness, confess some sin. Perhaps it's the trials. Instead of asking why God in the sense of what can I do, it's God, I, I question you, your character, which we're, James is clear we mustn't do. So let's spend some time in prayer and then we'll go to communion.